thank you so much for, for this opportunity to come to your word. Um, we just ask that by your spirit that you would teach us, that you would, you would speak to our hearts uh, individually, where we live, uh, what, what we tell today, that you would change us, that we would become more Christ-like. Father, we pray that everything that happens today here between the, the class, the, the worship service, would be glorifying to you. Thank you for all you're going to do today. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, I don't know where everybody is this morning, but that means that this is going to be a totally awesome class. We're going to be able to drill down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, start, start with Psalm 93. Um, so this morning... As usual, I asked Karen, I said, okay, can you pick the psalm for this morning? And she said it wasn't her job this morning. So. <laughs> now, wait a minute. you got to tell me what time. How much before we're supposed to leave out the door? There's plenty of time. <laughs> anyway, and then so I asked Bob, I said, Bob, pick a psalm this morning. So I overrode both of them. <laughs> so we'll go to Psalm 93. So I, 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 I share that. Just the rebel in you. So that Karen won't feel alone that I, I trump the psalm each week. Psalm 93, whoever gets here, read out. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his will. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from the world, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holy is your house, O Lord, forevermore. Amen. So, this morning we're in uh, in chapter ten of John still, and I'd like to go ahead and finish up chapter ten this morning. Um, who can tell me what John's about in general, and then we'll quickly center in on chapter ten. What's John about? Non-believing and remaining. It's about, uh, repeat? Knowing, believing, and remaining. Knowing, believing, and remaining. So, uh, John wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. So, we need to unpack what that means. What does it mean that this man, Jesus, is the Christ? And that... um, says in John 20, 31, says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we understand that um, we're to know him, we're to believe uh, in him. We want to understand what knowing him means, believing in him means, and then the result of all of that is, is that we are in him, and we have eternal life in his name. And that there's a, uh, an implied um, command in that to remain, to walk with the Lord. And what we see is that John is broken up into um, kind of two halves with the passion story in there makes, um, makes it a third. It thirds. And then there's a prologue and an epilogue. And so if we look at the organization, so we have no believe, remain, um, you'll see that there's a prologue and an epilogue, kind of puts the bookends on John. Then there's a, a public ministry part, a private ministry part, and then the passion story of Jesus' work for our salvation. And so where we're at right now is we're in the public part of John's ministry, and we have been looking at how uh, John chose to, to share with us what has been written. Um, he said many things he could have written, but these have been written for a specific purpose. So the, the particular uh, events of Jesus' life that John chose to share are thematically organized uh, around helping us to know, believe, and remain. And so we see... uh, that John shares the uh, episodes in Jesus' ministry where Jesus specifically challenges 
people's religious belief because he wants them to understand what the purpose of true religion is, what it was instituted for, um, ultimately to point to the Messiah, point to the Christ. And as the Messiah, he would do that. He would point people to himself. And he does that by challenging the institutions of uh, the religious practice of the Jewish people and the uh, festivals. So the festivals are really important to these folks. And so we've pretty much marched through uh, all of this. We've marched through uh, Jesus challenging the whole concept of cleansing and purity, how you approach God, uh, the, the temple and the purpose of the temple, the rabbinical ministry, the whole issue of um, tradition, uh, and all of that being institutions of religion, and then specific festivals, and he, he, uh, he challenges the Sabbath a lot. Most people don't think of the Sabbath as a festival, um, but that was uh, uh, something that was given to us specifically by God. We read about that in Exodus, just as the other um, festivals are given, and they're specifically there for a purpose. And so we see that Jesus uh, challenged what they believed about the Sabbath, the Passover, the festival of tabernacles, <clears throat> or tents. I only used a word last week that didn't pick up well, so I'm going <laughs> to choose a different word this week. Uh, and finally, uh, a very, very uh, minor festival, one called Hanukkah. Who knows about Hanukkah? What's Hanukkah about? I, Right, the dedication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt. So what happened is that the peoples, so they, God made a promise to his people um, through Abraham, and that that promise was uh, repeated through Abraham's son, Isaac, the son of promise, and through Isaac's son, Jacob, and was given specifically to uh, the tribes of Israel, um, and they, it would be very easy for people when God is, is uh, speaking to you and making promise to make that about you and your family only, but actually these promises were broader in scope. They were for all of humanity. Um, and we, we see that, and we're going to see that this morning. Um, but these people group, uh, if you read through the account in Exodus, um, they're really kind of, uh, the, the words that's used is stiff-necked. In other words, they're pretty stubborn. Um, they don't get it a lot. So what happens is, is that God is very patient and kind. He has a loving kindness he expresses towards his people. In fact, the care and protection that he provides for his people, the provision, the protection, the, that tender care, is often uh, used in the analogy of a husband and a wife, how God has been a husband to his people. Um, and, and yet... The, uh, the wife has rebelled against the husband's protection and care and gone off and done her own thing. So we see that as both a, uh, a living expression of the peoples as they march through history, um, first in the time of the judges, and the time of the judges is going to be referenced this morning in chapter 10, uh, the idea that um, God intends to rule as king in our hearts, and that in subservience to the king, in submission to the king, we should discern and make kingly judgments ourselves. So I'll come to that when we look at Psalm 82, which is a reference in John chapter 10. Um, but what happened is, is that the people did what was right in their own eyes, because there was no king in the land. Like we read about in the judges, that at the end of that period of time, uh, in the last verse in Judges, where you get to Samuel, um, goes to the end state of the people. We read, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it's making it, that statement is about the heart of men. So this is all about, about the condition of the human heart. right? And what happened is, is that because God... Um, but because humanity had rejected God as king, God instituted uh, a kingly administration through delegate kings uh, among men. So what happened is, is that the, the Hebrew nation then 
took on kings. God warned them what would happen with human kings, that human kings would make, you know, they would basically gather fortunes to themselves. They would have conscripted labor, um, conscripted military, uh, that they would uh, put the people into slavery, ultimately, and that that was the way that it worked among men in the world apart from God, and that was evident, for example, in Egypt, right? But the people said, no, we want a king. And so what happened is, after God had delivered the people and brought them into the land, uh, he set up the administration of the kings. And it didn't take but one generation of the kings from David um, to split the nation. There was a civil war uh, at the end of Solomon's reign, and the nation split. And there was a north and a south. Sounds familiar. And uh, the nation in the north was named Israel. Uh, and it was made up of nine tribes. And the nation in the south was called uh, Judah. And the, Ju the tribe of Judah absorbed the tribe of Simeon. They were geographically located within Judah. And also the Levites, which served in the temple, also um, kind of uh, had an affinity towards that tribe. Although they were also, they're they like the neutral party. They were both north and south. And we see that in the northern kingdom, in Israel, there were no good kings. There wasn't a single one that the commentary provided by both the human writers speaking for God had anything um, noteworthy to say about the lives of these people. These leaders were terrible leaders on the whole. doesn't mean that they didn't occasionally do good things. But on the whole... They were judged as, as worthless rulers. They were not kings that walked uh, with God and that led the people into a walk with God because that was the role of the king. First, he was to be dedicated to the true king and then he was to lead his people in a way that would bring them into worship of the true king. And we read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 18. That was the, the specific commission to the human kings. In the southern kingdom, they had eight good kings. Out of the whole host of kings that served in the south, only eight were judged by um, the books to be the kind of king that, that followed that commission. And at the end of that period of time, God said, you know, you guys have turned your heart against me to such a point that the only chance of redemption is to uh, allow the consequence of your sin to come upon you. And he brought them into captivity in Babylon. First, the northern, conquered, uh, northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, and they uh, no longer stood in any way. And then the southern uh, kingdom was conquered by Babylon and taken into captivity. And that's when we read about the, uh, the captivity, specifically through the prophets of Daniel and Ezekiel. And we're going to look at Ezekiel this morning, chapter 34. Now, I've gone into this introduction. I want you to kind of thumb to where Ezekiel 34 is, because that's what we're going to read next. It's specifically a commentary about the heart of the leaders of these people and how they had gone astray. And yet, we understand that God wasn't done yet. He didn't just abandon his people in captivity, but actually had a plan, a plan to bring about the true king, the one we call Messiah who we read about in Daniel 7.13, one that's called the Son of Man. And that's a specific title for Messiah, one who would be the, the, uh, the conquering, ruling king. And I say conquering because he conquers the greatest enemy of God's creation. He conquers death itself. And when he rules, he rules with justice. And he also rules with mercy. But we need to understand that justice and mercy are tightly bound. And so a lot of times when we read about justice and judgment, it sounds really harsh. Well, um, if you're outside of God's holiness, that's a bad place to be. And it's a harsh correction to bring you into a place where you are actually um, able to come into communion with God. But God is merciful in that he extends his loving kindness to bring us to that place. So let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 34 because this is the context of Hanukkah. 
What happened at Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedications, is that through that process of the people going through, being separated from God, being a captive nation, they were uh, in captivity under the Babylonians, subsequently the Persians, which we read about um, later in the accounts of Esther and Nehemiah and uh, Ezra. After the Persians came the Greeks, and the Greeks had a great influence on the people. They, uh, the people really started being assimilated into the culture of the world. So if you look at uh, the Bible, it was a clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of God. The people were really getting sucked into the kingdom of the world. They were really losing their way. And yet God had called them out of the world. right? So um, that's what he does to his people. He calls them to be with him. That's his promise, that we would have a place in his kingdom that we would become citizens through adoption. And that, um, so, in this period of time, under the Greek rule, before the Romans came in, there was a deterioration, and that's when we read about the Maccabean Revolt. So if you look at your history of intertestamental time, there was a, a particular Greek general that was particularly bad, but the priesthood had become very corrupted. The priesthood of the Jews had become corrupted, and they made alliances with the Greek generals to the point where this Greek general came in and completely reorganized the whole temple system, actually sacrificed uh, a pig on the altar such that the blood of that which was forbidden for the people was what flowed rather than the, the sacrifice that was, was called for. Um, there was actually idols set up within the holy place itself. And the priesthood went along with that. They supported it. And the Maccabean revolt is about uh, a group of people led by uh, Jacob Maccabeus who restored the purity of the temple. They, they retook it and they um, reconsecrated the temple. And that's what Hanukkah is about. It's about that Feast of Dedication is an eight-day period uh, of celebration where the oil that uh, Jacob had, which would only burn for one day, burned for eight, while they rededicated the temple. And as part of the celebration of that, they said, we want to remember this, right? So these are a people that they want to remember, remember, remember. Even though this is a minor thing in their history, they wanted to remember what happened, the rededication of the temple. So they would read the liturgy, liturgy as part of their uh, preaching during those eight days, they would read from, uh, from Ezekiel chapter 34. Let's take a look at Ezekiel 34. So Ezekiel 34, and this is what they would actually read. So you go to, uh, you would go to the, uh, um, not the temple, well, it would have been read at the temple, it would have been read at all of the uh, religious worship places, but this is what the practice would be. They would read this. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, that's uh, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to those shepherds, Thus saith the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, <clears throat> who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely, because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field, for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. 
For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. <coughs> Let's go ahead and, and, uh, and stop there. They would actually read... Uh, significantly further through. Well, maybe, let, let's go ahead and read all the way through here. It says, As for you, my flock, so now speaking to the flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Some of this stuff should sound really familiar to you because you've probably read it in Matthew, you've read it in other gospel accounts. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures? Or that you should drink of the clear waters and that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your own feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with, uh, with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the wheat with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. It, it's important to understand that not, not only is uh, this prophecy against the leadership, but it, there's also a personal responsibility, and that Jesus is going to uh, focus on that later in chapter 10. So says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be a prey to the nations, and the beasts of the earth will not devour them. They will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. I will establish them uh, for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land, and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. They will know that I am the Lord their God and with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So we understand that this prophecy is both short term and there's a, a judgment being made on the uh, former leadership and even the present leadership of the, the Hebrew nation. But that, that judgment isn't just on the leaders, it's also on the peoples. That when peoples follow bad leadership, um, that's as, as wrong and as dangerous as the leadership leading them astray. So there is a responsibility of those within the flock to actually do the right thing and not muddy the waters for others. But then finally, there's an establishment when the king comes of his kingdom. And that's what the last part of that prophecy is about. It's the establishment of what we call the Messianic kingdom. So they would read this as part of the liturgy of Hanukkah. And that's why uh, uh, last week, uh, Bob asked the question about the organization in chapter 10. Is, is the first part of chapter 10 associated with chapter 9? Because it's a criticism of the leadership 
of the peoples. Or, as I indicated, no, this is all within the context of Hanukkah. All of chapter 10 is within the context of Hanukkah. And I think as you read through this, you'll see that. So let's go ahead and read through chapter 10 of uh, John. We'll read the whole of chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the the fold of the sheep, but climbs up by some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep will follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. (coughs) I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it, up, take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At the time of the Feast of Dedication took uh, at this at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered round him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I show you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing as he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. A lot of reading. Um, So I typically don't read such large portions for him. But I wanted you to see the relationship between the two. That there was a prophecy in 600 B.C., that spoke specifically to this time. So you're speaking of the Ezekiel passage? Pardon? That you're speaking of, okay. Yes. And that 
Ezekiel, when he wrote, he was in captivity, just like Daniel was in captivity. So Ezekiel was uh, a prophet that, uh, rather than being in uh, Babylon, he was in Susa, uh, which is another part of the, the uh, Babylonian province at that point in time, and became Persian, uh, and significant place within the Persian Empire at a later point in time. So Ezekiel has no context other than having watched the kings before him. But Ezekiel's not just speaking from his own experience. It's actually a prophetic utterance, which is why it's recorded for us. And Ezekiel is um, helping to do the very thing that Jesus was doing. He was challenging the religious uh, practice of the day, trying to show them that they had totally gone off the mark. What was religion about? What was this practice of men that they were doing in order to remember God because they had completely forgot God? So it was all the, the whole of the religious practice was about um, remembering who God is and the incredible deliverance that he has done. So when you think about this, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So man was created by God and put in dominion over God's creation. And it wasn't that man owned that creation, but rather that man had a responsibility to God to care for the creation. We read about that in the first chapter of Genesis. When man was created, he was appointed to, to care for the earth. So he had a delegated kingship. But what happened is man, we read about in uh, chapter 2, and when we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, um, in chapter 2, we read about man actually performing that role as the delegate king over creation, naming the animals, um, and caring for God's creation to the point where we read about the incompleteness of man. And that even though God created man and woman, we read about in chapter 1, we read a little bit more detail about how that actually comes together in chapter 2. And that there was a communion between God's delegated kings that was to pattern the kind of communion that there was between man and God on the whole. And so we see that there was marriage instituted and that that was good. Not only was it good, it was very good. God did something in creation that actually reflected himself, his heart and specific attributes of his being. But when, we, when sin entered in, it totally <coughs> corrupted that. And death entered in immediately. So Adam didn't just like a stone fall over dead, but his heart died. He no longer had communion with God. In fact, he tried to hide from God. You read the account. What did God do? He came looking for him. So you see the loving kindness of God, the mercy of God... The intent of God as the good shepherd to come after his lost sheep from the very beginning. And when Ezekiel wrote about this, he was saying all of these things were written down for you to remember about who God is and what he's doing. You forgot. In fact, your leaders are leading your people astray. They're doing just the opposite of what God intended for his redemptive work in this world. So he gives a picture of uh, the sheep. And this is a, a picture uh, in Israel of um, a sheepfold. This is what would happen is they would be out on the, the hills, and I don't have a picture of the surrounding hill country, but I can show you that. Um, this happens to be taken in the early spring, so you actually see grass in here, because this part of the country, that grass gets to be little nubbles. Later on, there's kind of like a period where it kind of, you know, jumps up into green and then quickly uh, gets dispersed. But what would happen is this grass would grow on the surrounding hills. So you see a bunch of rock up here? Well, most of the hills are rock, and you'd have this grass, and they'd have the sheep go out, and the sheep would, with their sticky tongues, would suck that grass off the ground, and they would go to the watering holes, and you actually read about this in the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
So we have this picture from David speaking prophetically. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's all about who God is, right? He's the good shepherd. And so what would happen in, in our corrupted world is we have this pattern of the sheep and the shepherd. And the sheep would, by day, go out and the shepherd would lead them out through this gate, out to the areas where they could eat the grass. They weren't intended to just munch this grass and totally destroy it and to munch the water that would have been around here and totally defile it. We read about that, right? So what you did is you hung out and you ate and corrupted your own grass and you muddied your own waters, right? You're supposed to go out to the place that the Lord leads you. And so they would go out through the gate and they would, uh, the sheep would be led to the pastures. And then at night, the shepherd would lead them back and they would be protected. This area here, this is actually a little cave here. Um, and that if you look... We have an opportunity to go to Israel at some point in the future. Um, they'll point out these kind of formations. In the country where they would raise the sheep, um, they have this layer, a hardened layer on the surface it's called gnarl. That's what this is right here. And underneath is a kind of uh, limestone that's a little bit softer. Uh, and it would uh, erode. And so it would make these caves. You'll find these kinds of caves all over in that hill country. And they would bring them into this kind of naturally uh, enclosed area. They would pile up around the edge of this thorn bushes when they had them. Sometimes they would build higher walls. And there are different styles of pens or, or sheep uh, pens or folds. And they would, uh, in some way, they would try and put a wall or a hedge around it, but there would always be a gate. And the shepherd would sleep in the gate. So he'd get his, his, uh, his folk his sheep, into the pen, and then he would lay down there. And he had his weapons to protect them, his rod and his staff, uh, in order to protect his sheep. And so what you read about here when it says, um, he's talking about, in chapter 10, one who enters not by the door, not by the gate. So if someone comes over the edge, they're not supposed to do that. So they have to by be a thief or one who intends something bad for the sheep. He's trying to do something nefarious. Are, yeah. are the doors normally like the doors meaning the cave entrances are they normally that large? Because um, like Sometimes sometimes there's not any kind of cave at all. Sometimes there would be a cave and you would find water in the cave and things like that. So this is it's kind of like the shepherd has his turf so and so when, like, I'm just thinking of when it says those who enter by the door, you know, talking about the door. Yep. And so, so the sheep would come in through the door, and they would be led out by the door, and the shepherd would actually service the gate. Mm-hmm. Or the uh, the language here is that he is. It says uh, Jesus said to them again, uh, "I say to you, I am the door of the sheep." Right. So Jesus is the one who is the good shepherd. Uh-huh. He's the one that's laying across that entry point. In fact, he is the entry point. Yeah. So we're going to actually see awesome. this explicitly stated in, in 14. Awesome. Three. Yep. And, that's what, and this is referring, again, using that festival of dedication, Hanukkah, to help the people understand what was going on and where they stood. So this is not just about the leadership. I mean, the leadership heard this and they are, you know, hair bristled on the back of their neck. They said, man, he's calling me out. I don't like this. The people actually were called out too. They were, they were called to decision. Do you want to be a sheep of this fold? Or do you want to be of a different fold? Right? So, and you saw the same thing. So when, as we marched through, we looked at chapter 5 and Jesus took on the Sabbath and his role as this, the Son of Man and the Son of God, that he was actually doing the work of God, and he actually gave support. He gave five pieces of evidence and said, um, these are the evidences that I am the Son of God and that I have been called by God and that this is my, uh, my mission 
and the role that I have as the, uh, as the Messiah. And he said that the Son has a place of privilege with the Father. In fact, that place of privilege is such that um, the very life of the Father that he has, that he breathed into creation, the Son of Man, the Son of God, also has that. He says, just as the Father has life within himself, so also the Son has life and can give it to whomever he chooses. And that the Son, this one that is, is called to this mission and role of the Redeemer, of the King, also has the, the uh, authority to make judgments because he is true. When he says, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's speaking about that which in him, as God, he is holy and righteous. And in that uh, place, he is the only one that can truly make holy and righteous judgments. And a judgment is all about restoring one to the place of being in rightness, right? Being in righteousness. Uh, Justice and judgment is all about taking that which is in the wrong place and moving it to the right place. And so that's what Jesus' role is. That's why he is the judge. Um, He is the life giver. And he is the gate. In fact, you can't get into this unless you come through him. And he makes that very explicit later on. He's, He's using a figure of speech right now, trying to help the people in this context of the festival, Feast of Dedication, to understand who he is. But we saw that in chapter 5, we saw that in chapter 6, where he helped us understand the, the Passover, that he is the bread that which is, has come down from heaven, that his, his self is that which truly nourishes and brings life. And we saw in chapter 7, uh, as he, we, the festival of tabernacles, how he declared that they had this part of the festival where they would pour water on the altar. He said... I am that water. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. And he was speaking about that, the, that which is the source of life. So he is not only the source of nourishment, that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is the word. But he's also the source of that life. So when we got to chapter 9, there was a turning point. Remember me, I pointed this out last week. Chapter 9 is all about decisions. Do you believe this? So now we've had a full revelation of who God is. He's going back and he's recapping the revelation again in phenomenal language that they can understand. This is who I am, Jesus is saying. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. And anybody else that would come over the side or um, speak to you in a way that is not my voice, is not me, that they're a thief. And they come only for one purpose, to steal, to kill, and to ultimately destroy you. But he said, I've come that you might have life. And not just have life, but have it to the full. That you would have the very eternal life of God. And that's what it means that you would be in Christ. That you actually share in his resurrected life. As he is, we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, so will we be. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. And the people, because this is not just a, a call to decide from the leader's perspective, have I been doing that which God has called me to? Mm-hmm. But to a follower, which leaders are followers, by the way, too. You have to be a follower first where you can be a leader. To the followers, do I believe this? So this is a decision point. That's what's being asked. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ? And what happened is, as what always happens, um, a division occurred because of these words. Now, I say that because that's exactly what happens in the world today. Every time someone speaks these words, it's a call on you. 
Judgment is standing before you. Um, are you going to hear and respond to the, to the voice of the Good Shepherd? Or are you going to respond to some other voice? Some said, he has a demon, he's insane. Guy's nuts. This is just, this is like Richard Dawkins saying, that is insane. Religion is stupid. This belief in God is stupid. There is no God. That's what Richard Dawkins would tell you. Everything that you see is explainable by natural causes. That's Richard Dawkins speaking. That's because when he hears this, it's a call to decide. And he's decided, he has a demon, he's insane. Why do you listen to him? Those were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So what we have is evidence that Jesus is the Christ. We have the evidence of the works that he has done. We, and those works are manifest within our congregation. So we see people, and I would be one, who walked in a bad way, and because of the work that Jesus did in me, I'm not there anymore. It's a miracle. And it may, it may not seem like that much of a miracle to you guys, because you didn't know me before. But those that knew me before, they would have never guessed you know, that it would take an act of God to change my heart. Well, it did. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and not only that, but I can have some assurance that that act of God isn't just like, okay, Dave, you, you can decide or not decide, and, you know, come if you want. No. When he got hold of me, he was not going to let go. And that's what he says here. He says... Um, he lays down his life for, uh, for his sheep so that he may take it uh, again. No one has taken it, but he lays it down on his own initiative, speaking of the love of the Father. He has authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This commandment he received from his Father. And what he's going to say further is that no one can snatch them out of his hand. No one can snatch them out of his hand. That's where he goes to as we read further. Because they, they want to understand, okay, if I truly am trusting you as my shepherd, which means that you're going to lead me to a place of life, you're going to lead me beside the still waters, you're going to restore my soul, you're going to bring me to the green pastures. If I'm trusting you for that, can I trust you that you will, you will truly, truly go the full distance for me? That full distance, everybody comes up to that trial. Right? And Jesus is right there. And we read about that. We commemorate it in poems. We read about it in the Psalms. We know that he's got our back. And that we have eternity with him. Um, I think of the, the songs that we sing. Um, because I know I can face the future. I can face tomorrow. Right? What, what are all the words to that song? Because I know I can face tomorrow. Because I know I can face tomorrow. Because he lives. Because he lives. Because he lives. Tomorrow. Yep. Because he lives. That's right. All fear is gone. Yep. Because I know. All fear is gone. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's what happens to the sheep. Life is worth the living. Yeah. Yep. Life is worth the living just because he lives. That was what he wanted to give to us. His very life. That, that's just amazing. So when we read on, there were those that were still hanging in. It's like, whoa, this guy isn't nuts. He's saying something to me personally as a follower. And there were leaders there too that also caught on to that. So the next scene that we have is that Jesus moves into um, the temple area where he goes to these porches. And this would be a place, so this is December. December 18th, 1932. 1932. Uh, 32 AD. <laughs> I was going to say, whoa. 32 AD. Right? December 18th, 32 wow. AD. It was winter. Yeah, sorry. Occasionally my brain misfires. Uh, so at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the port, portico of Solomon. So even though Herod built this great uh, monolithic uh, monument, 
Uh, it was patterned after the temple that Solomon built, which was a grand uh, temple, and it had these porches around the sides, all the way around. You'll see them on this side over here, too. And it was there that they would come take shelter from the, from the elements. Um, they would also have their shops set up there. This is kind of where people would uh, set up their temple life, was in these porches. So Jesus went into the porches, and it says that many gathered around him. So um, this was probably somewhat scary. Here's Jesus, and some want to kill him, and some want to hear what he has to say, and they basically make it such that he has no escape. They gather around him. And it says, the Jews gathered around him and were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Quit using these figures of speech. Just tell me, are you Messiah or not? That's what they're saying. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. So the problem is not one of clarity of communication. The problem is one of the condition of the heart. That's why this is a call passage. This is where God is speaking to you personally. He's speaking to them personally. Do you believe this? Jesus answered, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. I've given the evidence. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So it's important to understand that the shepherd doesn't drive his sheep. It's not like a cattle drive, where you got the guys with the ropes and the and the spurs and the, and the horses driving a cattle. No, the shepherd goes out in front. And sometimes they would have a little flute that they would carry with them, that there would be their distinctive call to the people, and they would lead the sheep. The sheep would hear. It didn't matter if in a, a sheep pen, and they were larger pens. I showed you one that would have occurred out in the wild, but there were larger ones um, where they would have lots of different... Uh, flocks of sheep gathered. And what would happen is the shepherd would come and he would call his sheep. And those that were his knew his voice. They knew his flute. And they would follow him. And they would follow him right out the door. They'd follow him to the green pasture. So he says, those that are mine hear my voice. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The great assurance. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He's talking about the authority that he has um, and the power that comes with that authority to protect that which is his. And then he makes this statement, I and the Father are one. So what do you do with that? He just took you from a place of, yeah, this is a, this is a good guy. He's maybe a prophet. Um, certainly better than all those that came before. Um, I can't find any fault in him. He speaks words that no one has ever spoken like that before. You know, and he's not nuts. Oh, he's claiming unity with God himself. So what do you do with that? We can't get our head around that. How can one that is one of our brothers, same flesh and blood that we are, we know his mother, we know his brothers, how can he be God? Some of them, those that want that didn't believe, that wanted to find fault, said, that's blasphemy. Not everybody said that was blasphemy, but some said, no, let's, let's stop this right now. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, said, I show you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? So he's saying, I've given you a lot of evidence that this is true. Which, which piece of evidence is not valid? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. Let me take you to Psalm 82. That's the reference that he's making here. I'm going to read the whole of 82. It's not that long. <clears throat> Psalm 82, we read, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
This is the judgment of God against the leaders. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. So this is the call to those bad shepherds to do what is right. God's judging them. Do you not know, nor do, uh, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Remember when Jesus said that in chapter 9? They're walking about in darkness. These folks are blind. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. So what he's saying is that these leaders, by their appointment and call of God, had a responsibility to speak for God. They had a responsibility to judge justly. And he gives a very short list of what just judgment looks like. So when the people were under God as king in the time of the judges, when they had been brought into the land, this is how they were to behave. And they didn't. Because every man did what was right in his own eyes. Because no king was there. So the true king had to come. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For it is you who possess all nations. So what he's doing is he's saying, okay, if you're going to call me blasphemer because I'm doing the works of God in which you can find no fault, claim to actually do that which the Son of God is supposed to do, how can you do that when God himself says that this is what you're supposed to do. God himself says you are gods. Daniel? Uh, I was going to ask if then, uh, if judgment or condemnation is not judgment. If condemnation is not judgment. So condemnation is the side of judgment where uh, a true statement about you is made. If you were found in unrighteousness, you were condemned. The reason I ask is because in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Whoever believes him, uh, or 17, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that it would be saved through him. Right. And then there in that chapter 9, 39, he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. Right. So the very, the very presence of God doing the works of God in redemption puts you in a place of being judged. You stand before the judge now. And, as, and, and what it says in 3.18, it says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. So this, this call to believe is actually the judgment, point of judgment. That's why you read in Hebrews chapter 9, it says it is appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes judgment, right? That, um, and that this is a, a manifold, uh, well, I won't unpack that because we're not in Hebrews, but the whole point is, is that when you come before the Son of God, which they were, they stood at a place of judgment, and the judgment is, do you believe or not believe? Or the, uh, not the judgment, but the, uh, the decision that we need to make in that judgment. God's asking. And that he's providing a way of life. That doesn't mean that there's no cost for that. There's a great cost for that. But that um, you stand there judged already by your unrighteousness. So what are you going to do? What do you believe? Do you believe this? About the Son of God? And these folks didn't want to. Even though Jesus said, you know, you're condemning me for the very thing that God commands you to do as leaders. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? In other words, he's doing the work of God. He is what the, he is the expressed... Uh, image of God in this world and we read that in multiple different ways he is the image of the invisible God we read in Hebrews right if I do not do the works of my father do not believe me 
how many people will stand up today and say, you know, what I'm saying is so true that the evidence is so irrefutable. If you can find any flaw in the evidence, just reject it on whole. Throw out the whole, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right? Because this is so airtight that there is nothing that is wrong in what I'm saying. Which means you could never sin, ever. Right. But if I do do these, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So even if you can't cognitively process how uh, God could actually enter into his creation, be fully human, and yet fully God, even if you can't grok that, get your arms around it, you can believe. You can put your trust in him. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Now, they had him completely surrounded. And when he said this and clarified it for them, it really ticked them off. Right? So they're like, okay, you're done. We're going to stone you right now. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was first baptized him. So what you see is the completion of the circuit. That's why this is near the end of his public ministry. What you're going to see is that he's going to, in his return to Jerusalem, there will be a stop at a close friend's house. That's going to be chapter 11. And in chapter 12, when he comes into Jerusalem, some of those that are not of this fold, not of the, the Hebrew descent, uh, descendants of Abraham, but are descendants of Abraham at heart, are going to come to him because they've heard he's the Messiah. Right? That's the end of the public ministry. When he goes down to the Jordan, he's finishing where he started. So, so and you'd have to enter through the door, which is Jesus. And if you weren't to enter through the door, then you'd be a thief or, or something like that. But it would yep. be, the sheepfold itself would be in the presence of God then, right? In heaven, basically? Ultimately, and so we read about the Messianic kingdom at the end of chapter 34 of uh, Ezekiel. Because it doesn't end with the good shepherd's appearance. It ends with the good shepherd's restoration of righteousness and justice. And that that is a place of safety. So he's, whatever the hedge that he's built around the sheepfold is something that cannot be penetrated by anyone. Uh, That's correct. Nobody can snatch you out of, the, out of the Messiah's hand, out of the Father's hand. The very strength that God has that spoke uh, creation is the strength that holds you <clears throat> fast. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything greater than the Word of God holding me fast. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's an incredible statement. It's like he wants his people to know, there he is. You're not going to be lost. It's not a failure of God um, if you're lost. It's that you don't desire to be part of his fold. That you choose to follow a different one. And that this is a call to the leaders to be followers first. Right? So he's like, it's like, you may be a leader and you may have a call, but guess what? You're a follower first. Do you believe this? And that's what happens as he goes down to the Jordan, he finishes his loop. He's now getting ready. <laughs> now getting ready to do his his prayer final ascent into Jerusalem. And it's there that people come to him. They seek him out and believe him. So I actually went over by much more than I intended. Sorry. Let's go ahead and close here. We did finish chapter 10, by the way. Um, And we'll pick up chapter 11 next week. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come uh, before you and just to be in awe of um, the completeness of your word, how it all fits together. Uh, to declare who you are, your glory, your work, your love. Um, All of that is just uh, so much uh, that we can hardly hold it. Um, 
Lord, and we know that it's very, very difficult for us to, to comprehend, but nonetheless, we, uh, we choose to believe, we choose to trust, we choose to make you our all in all, and Lord, we, uh, we thank you for that, that you would even invite us to that to begin with, and that in that you would um, make our eternal life secure. Um, Lord, we thank you for this, we thank you for uh, all that this church is doing. We ask you to be with Bob this morning as he expounds upon your word uh, that others would hear. Uh, Lord, none of us are of your fold, that we are born into sin and separation from you, but you call us. Lord, I ask that that calling would be so clear this morning and that many would respond. Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, your provision for us, that we live in a, a crazy world, your protection of us. Lord, we thank you that you continue to serve us day in and day out in so many ways we don't even see or appreciate. We want to say thank you now, Lord, for our lack of appreciation, uh, not for thanking you for lack of appreciation, but thanking you because we don't appreciate it sincerely enough. Lord, we thank you for all this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.